You're listening to the First Baptist Church Broken Arrow podcast. To learn more about the church, visit us at fbcba.org. Today's sermon comes from our pastor, Dr. Matt Brooks. Good morning, church. If you want to please open your Bibles and me to the book of Colossians this morning, Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, as we continue a series on Colossians 1 and 2, called The Goat, the Greatest of All Time. My name is Matt Brooks. I'm the senior pastor here at First Baptist Church at Broken Arrow. I want to welcome you to one, literally, one of the, the goat Sundays that we have in the spring. It's Super Bowl Sunday, right? Are you ready? Okay. All right, who do we got? Chiefs. Chiefs. 49ers. Okay. One. That's great. One. Uh, how many of us, hey, we don't really have a dog in this fight. We're just here for the food, right? Food. Yeah. Are we ready? Hey, I, I've been ready all week. Been doubling my cardio. I'm not eating a thing the entire day. No lunch after church. Ready for Super Bowl Sunday. We are also excited to have Jay Wood, my man here. Love you, bro. So grateful for all you're doing for the kingdom. It's been an incredible movement weekend. This is a time of intentionality with our students, six through 12, where we kind of gather together and say, look, here's our mission. Here's our our path. This is what we're passionate about. Now let's go live this out on this hill and off this hill. And church, why don't we give it up to the Lord? We praise God. 162 total students and volunteers this weekend, team members. Thank you, Jesus. 162. Praise the Lord. Nine mission sites served, and so far, we'll see what the Lord does this morning, but so far we have four decisions, four decisions for Christ, salvation, or taking next steps in baptism. Praise the Lord for his faithfulness to us. We are right now in the midst of a series in Colossians, and I want to remind you that the Colossians, unlike any other book in the New Testament, focuses on the supreme character and actions of the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, specifically from Colossians 1, 21 through 23, I'm going to talk to you about the incredible, undeniable, assured hope we have in Christ reconciling us to God by faith. You and I are enamored by rivalries and feuds. There's just something intrinsic within each and every one of us. For sports, we have the Lakers and the Celtics. We have the Red Sox and the Yankees. We have Joe Frazier and Muhammad Ali from old. We have Ohio State, Michigan. We had Bedlam last night, right? I mean, can we just all acknowledge that you know, Lord, I think we've had enough of basketball season for both schools. Let's just go straight to both softball and baseball. I, I can't believe in two weeks we've got to sit through that again. But we will because we love rivalries or feuds. It's the same thing in sitcoms, sitcoms of old. When I was growing up, there was Seinfeld. You had Jerry and Newman, one of the greatest sitcoms of all time, The Office. You had Jim and Dwight. So we've had it politically. George Washington had just as many enemies as he did friends. Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson didn't get along at all. Andrew Jackson fought with everybody. In the 1860s, we had Abraham Lincoln and Stephen Douglas. In the 1960s, we had Richard Nixon and JFK. We have right now Trump and basically everybody else, right? We just love these feuds and animosities or something within this. Even within the song world and the music world, we have those who love Taylor Swift. You're Swifties. It's okay. Get over it. We have those that don't, all right? Well, we really have those like, can we just watch a football game tonight? Can, can we literally just stake to football and great food? Why? There's something about rivalries. There's something about feuds. Well, there's a feud that happened in 15th century Ireland that I'm sure most of you aren't aware of, but you need to know about. It was known as the Earl of Kildare feud in Ireland. It was between two families, the Ormond family 
and the Kildare family. Now, there is some ambiguity on how this rivalry started. Most think it's because of nobility and land and power, which is pretty predictable for those who know Irish history. But the ending is crystal clear. These two clans are fighting over land, fighting over power and what's rightfully theirs. And lives are beginning to be lost. Families are beginning to be destroyed. And ultimately, one night, the Kildares had surrounded the Ormond family, stuck them in their castle, and a siege began for almost a month. And all of a sudden, I think both the Earl of Ormond and the Earl of Kildare began to realize the brevity of their actions. So much so that the Earl of Kildare began to speak to his elders, what are we doing? We claim to worship the same God. We came, we came to love the same Ireland. We claim to love our families and yet we're destroying them. What are we doing? Someone must act. And so the father of the tribe, the Earl of Kildare, he went to the castle of the Armands and he begged the Earl to reconcile. Come out here, meet with me, man to man, tribe to tribe, shake my hand, smoke this peace pipe, so all will know from now on, we will no longer have feud but be at peace. And so the Ormans wisely said, this is a trick. There is no way this can be real. And so the Earl of Kildare grabbed his greatest spear of his greatest soldier. And before all, he stormed the castle. There were almost archers that took him out on the way there, but they didn't. There was a pause. There was a stunning brevity of what this man was doing. And he began to bang the door with this spear. Give me peace, give us peace. And he shoved this spear right through the door and he shoved his hand right behind it. And he said, shake on it, man to man, tribe to tribe, elder to elder. And those men shook and peace came upon their families. That is exactly what Paul wants us to get from Colossians 1, 21 through 23 that God the Father, God the Earl of the world, has reconciled sinful man with himself through the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the greatest feud and rivalry, the Bible says, is not something you and I enjoy in sports or politics or culture and music, even sitcoms, but it's how God has reconciled himself. As a holy and just God with a sinful humanity, through the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, in a prayer that has begun in verse nine, will conclude in verses 21 and 23 on how you and I can find such peace. Hope in the gospel is not wishful thinking. Hope isn't something you and I can manufacture on our own. It is something given by faith to us through Christ. And so Paul ends this prayer by communicating that the sovereign Christ is also the saving Christ that the same Christ who made the world, the same Christ who holds all things together, is the very same Christ who brings us together before God. That in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, God identifies himself in every way possible with our sin. Yet he pays for that sin alone through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is his means, his arm of reconciliation to all who will embrace it. And can I tell you, Paul's point in these verses is that all of the works that has been undertaken by Christ 
Saving the soul is the greatest work. Greater than his work in creation is the recreation of you and I being damned and hostile to God in our sins, but yet being reborn by the power of the Holy Spirit in Christ. Greater than Christ forming each and every baby in the womb. You are fearfully and wonderfully made, the scripture says, is the miracle of being born again through the power of the Spirit in Christ. Greater than God performing the miracles of Christ in the Gospels is the miracle that you and I, spiritually dead in our sins, can by faith be alive to God in Christ. Nothing rivals God's work in salvation. Nothing is greater than the reconciliation that you and I are about to study. Because Jesus does this not save for a moment or for a season, but for all time through faith in him. It is this hope that Paul says will get us through the day. It is this hope that'll get us through all of these mindless commercials tonight. It is this hope that you and I can run this spring for the Lord Jesus Christ, the greatest of all time. It is this that you and I study now, the true reality of the hope of the gospel. So why don't we, with our hearts and minds, uh, why don't we study verse 21, how this isn't something you and I can manufacture on our own, because we're in hostility to God. We're alienated from God, Paul will say. Then we'll study together the scope of this reconciliation. Finally, the aim at the end of verse 22, and then what it means for you and I to persevere in this hope of the gospel as we live it out for Christ. With this in mind, Paul says in Colossians 1, verse 21, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Surely not me. No, that's exactly what Paul says. He says, and you, nudge your neighbor and say, that's you, okay? Just want you to know, that's you, okay? Nudge the person next to you, that's you. That's all of us. Paul highlights here God's mighty action by contrasting our precondition before Christ to now our present standing with Christ. Paul attests to these believers in Colossae that the central purpose of God's reconciling work on the cross is to save us, are you ready for this, from ourselves to save us from the greater work, not outside of you, but inside of you, to restore what was broken in our relationship with God. Uh, John Stott, one of my favorite theologians, he said it well of this passage when he says, until you see the cross as which is done by you, you will never appreciate that it was done for you. Did you hear that? And you. Me, we were once alienated from God. Do you see this word alienated? We kind of conjure in our minds what this means. It means to be isolated, to be cut off permanently, to be estranged. It describes those in Paul's day, are you ready for this? Had a persistent and permanent condition. It carried a sense of deep loneliness, a longing to belong, but unable to do so. You ever been like that before in your life? And you just long for something greater. You just know that there's something more. You, you just sense that there is some greater work that you're to be a part of. It's true. It is because you were alienated before Christ, before you've been reconciled, you were alienated to God. All you thought of was yourself. This is not because of ignorance. 
This is willful love of sin. Our attitudes, our actions are in hostility to God. His will, his desires, his best in our life. Paul says it like this in Romans 3, 10 through 11. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. For no one understands. No one seeks God. The Bible says that, that you and I just didn't grow up in a Baptist church and start loving Jesus. No. That before Christ, we were alienated. We longed to belong, but we never could do so. That from the depths of our being, we didn't love our king. We were king. We loved ourselves. We trust ourselves. We're all about us. And that's exactly what sin does. Sin enslaves us to sin, not God. We are in every sense in bondage to our indulgences. We are in every way enslaved to our impurities. We are spiritually separated from the one and only God, blinded by our own iniquities, by our own desire to make ourselves something we could never be, the Lord Jesus Christ, each and every one of us. Paul says we're not only alienated, look back at verse 21, we're hostile. Before Christ, our minds, our thoughts, our lives were corrupted by sin. We're in conflict then with God. Before salvation, we are at our very best indifferent, at our very worst actively rebellious. So much so that it turns into a daily lifestyle, doing evil deeds. The term here suggests a combination of both idolatry and immorality. Paul reminds us that our sinful minds lead to sinful actions, that it's the willful love of sin that leads us to a greater love and control of sin in our lives. Thus, we are solely dependent upon ourselves for our own faculties, our own survival. That is why you and I have to be so clear with the gospel, so passionate about reaching those who are far from Christ, befriending those who don't know Christ, so that then we have the privilege to show and share the gospel. Hey, praise God for an incredible movement weekend. Praise the Lord. You and I both know this is just a glimpse of what God is going to do in and through his people. This is just a, a glimpse of a desire for our church that every generation reaches the next generation. You and I both know we praise God for four decisions for Christ, salvation, next steps in baptism. Praise the Lord for his goodness. But you and I both know that there are thousands of students that don't know Christ. That literally 2.2 miles from here, Generation Z goes to school, hangs out in your homes and neighborhoods, plays ball, plays in the band, does performing arts. They are our future. There are now. 94% of them do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Do the math. 1,200 graduates this year in BA high school. 94% of them do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You and I have much work to do. Much work. Much prayer. Much sharing, showing the gospel. Doing what God is doing on this hill, living it off this hill. And that is why even in our conversations, we've gotta be so intentional. We've gotta listen with passion and compassion. Because most of our advice in the world goes like this. Hey, you want to make a decision? Just follow your heart. Do what's best. That's terrible advice. We were hostile to God, alienated from God. We were doing evil deeds, not in God's will. No, we don't need to follow our heart. We need to repent in our heart. We also remember, if you hear this, just do what feels right. 
Just do what feels right. That's terrible advice. Horrible. Not in the New Testament. Not recommended. How about this? Just do what makes you happy. That is the worst counsel you can ever give anybody who doesn't love Christ. Because both testaments of the Bible, the Old Testament and New Testament, you ready for this? Prioritizes holiness, not happiness. There are no 10 steps to your happiness found anywhere in the scriptures. There's always a desire to die to self, to build Christ's kingdom, to treasure Christ above all things. And then he will give you what we can't manufacture on our own. He will give you every desire, Jesus says. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things. You don't know what that translated to Matthew 6 is? Everything. Everything that you truly desire for peace, happiness, and fulfillment can only be found from your creator. It can only be given to you by God through Christ, his means of reconciliation. It's this hope that we have in the gospel. Are we living it? Are we sharing it? May God give us an increase. May God spark revival, and it starts with us. It starts with what God has already done and is doing in our heart. May we burn with this passion of the gospel. You say, well, wait a minute. What is God's answer then in verse 21? Anselm, one of our favorite church fathers, said it well when he said, the debt was so great that while man alone owned it, only God alone could pay it. What is God's answer? Look at verse 22. For he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Let's stop right there. Paul says that God's ultimate plan for the universe is to reconcile it. Both cosmically in verse 20, now personally in verse 22. That God's desire is to reign in each and every heart. That God's desire is to recreate each and every heart, to be born again in every heart, to thrive from this heart a sense of God and his awesomeness to us through the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's point is, is that we cannot do this ourselves. That though we long to belong, Though we desire with every fiber in our being something and someone greater, it cannot come from us. It cannot come from programs. It cannot come from sports, from titles, positions, nothing. No degree can do this. Only God and God himself through the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul, are you ready for this? Communicates this as a completed, accomplished fact in verse 22. This isn't conjecture by Paul. No, this has happened as a result of the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Now, I want to stop right here because there's something very significant that we'll miss if we just move on to the greatness of this verse. What happens when you accept Christ? How does God see you? What does God do in and through us? Theologically, there's five things, very briefly. Five things. The moment you place your faith in Christ, you may be here and you may be apart from Christ. 
You, you, you know some, some truths of the gospel. You, you sense a community and warmness of what God is doing here. But man, you've never personally and totally surrendered. There's just a hesitation for some reason. So what happens? What does God do? Five things the Bible says. You ready for this? The moment you place your faith in Christ, you are instantly, you ready for this? Justified, the Bible says. Declared righteous. That God as the judge of all creation. The one who oversees all of eternity, from eternity now to eternity past. As the righteous judge of the universe, the moment you place your faith in Christ declares you righteous. You're not always going to feel this way. You're not always going to feel worthy of this. It doesn't matter. The judge of the universe declares you righteous because of the work of Christ and what he has done on your behalf. Secondly, you're then redeemed you are gained and granted freedom. That God by Christ pays back the totality of our sin, past, present, and future, through the death of Christ, through the blood of Christ on the cross. It is paid in full. We'll study this at length in Colossians chapter two, get ready. That there is no iota of our sin positionally before a holy God because it is paid in full. You have been redeemed. You are no longer enslaved, debted to your sin because God has paid it all in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are justified, you are redeemed. Thirdly, you're forgiven then. There is no debt upon a holy God. Your debt has been paid in full through Christ, so much so that it's removed. Stop worrying about debts that Christ has already paid for. Stop beating yourself, being weighed down by a spiritual debt that Christ by faith in him is already paid for. Your debt is paid. There are no penalties. God has paid for it through Christ. You're justified. You're redeemed. You're forgiven. Are you ready for this? You are reconciled, Paul says. The word reconciled here, you ready? It means to change the status of. It describes in biblical times of two parties who come together in conflict, who then walk away totally restored to peace, not as enemies, but as friends. That's Paul's point in verse 22, that you and I, it's strange to God, all of us, alienated, hostile, doing evil deeds, that glorify self, love self, champion self, have now, through faith in Christ, have been reconciled. Peace has been given where once there was hostility. The Lord has mended and built back something that we could never do on our own. So much so that we're not only justified, we're not only redeemed, we're not only forgiven by faith, we're not only reconciled, finally we're adopted. We have a status change. We are no longer alienated outside of covenant, outside of the flock. You ever felt like you didn't belong? You ever longed to belong? Now God, through faith in Christ, brings us in as his own. We go from being estranged sinners in the hands of an angry God to now sons and daughters of the king. Once and for all, that is who you are in Christ. That is what God has done for us in Christ. The moment your feelings change, The moment your mind begins to wonder, you set your heart on the hope of the gospel. No, 
I am not these things the world says. I am not these things the person inside of me says. I am who God says I am. I'm justified. I'm redeemed. I'm forgiven. I'm reconciled. And I'm adopted. How in the world could God do such? Look at verse 22. Through the body of the flesh by his death. Paul emphasizes there has been a complete reconciliation between God and man through the substitutionary action of Jesus' death on the cross. It is the death of the Son that brings us to life in the Father. I heard of a preacher from England of old in the late 1800s who, who had a couple in his congregation that, that had an amazing story. You see, this couple met at an early age and fell in love and were instantly married, probably a little bit too quick. And she, the wife, was found with child. And husband didn't want the baby. He didn't want the responsibility. He could barely feed himself and his wife. He didn't want this responsibility of fatherhood. And so he told the woman, have the child and get rid of it. She said, I don't want to do that. It's a gift from the Lord. I don't want to do that. He said, well, I'll have nothing to do with you then. So the husband leaves goes to proclaim his own fame and fortune. And in the midst of this, this woman found a church there in England. She began to fall more and more in love with the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was this church that, that helped her. This, this baby was born and raised. Tragically, after about a year, this baby contracted some malady and died. This woman couldn't even afford a proper burial for this son. So the church provided it. So once a week, this wife would go and pay respects to this lost son and to give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and the warmth of this new fellowship in the church. And in the meantime, the husband, who was desiring to have his own fortune and fame, comes back from his voyage, goes into the city and begins to ask about whatever happened to his wife and begins to hear that she had the baby and Tragically, the baby died, and so someone told the husband about where in the cemetery was this son. And he goes, and instantly, his life is flooded with remorse, shame, guilt, crushed by the weight of all of these things. He falls right in front of this headstone. A son that he never met. A son that he was never a father to. And he sensed someone behind him when he did this, and it was his wife. And instead of striking him, judging him, she lays her hand on his shoulder. And she begins to tell him about the love of a father who gave his one and only son. And this husband would ultimately accept Christ. And this couple would become a dynamic couple in the life of this church of England. It was the death of a son that brought them together. And that's Paul's point in verse 22. How can this happen? How could God do this? It is the death of his son that brings us to God. Why? Look at verse 22. For Paul now declares the aim of all reconciliation in order to present you holy and blameless above reproach before him. Paul triumphantly says that you and I as co-heirs with Christ 
that by faith in Christ are presented to the Father as what? Holy and blameless and above reproach. Holy here speaks of our relationship to God. Don't miss this. That the totality of our sin is paid for in full by the death of Jesus Christ. As a result, you, me, by faith, we are spotless, pure in Christ before a holy God. That God cares so much of this that God himself, through the liberating power of the Holy Spirit, inerts what's in us, his fruits, his power, and his grace, because we are holy. Secondly, we're also blameless. This speaks of our character with God, that positionally, we're without blemish. That before a holy God, as a result of Jesus praying for our sins, that we are declared not guilty. Just so you understand this, this same word for blemish here in verse 22 is of the word used in the Old Testament of a spotless lamb that was set apart by God as a means of sacrifice. It is the same phrase in the Gospels that the Gospel writers use to describe Jesus as the spotless Lamb of God. In Christ, positionally, God sees you as he sees Christ. So much so that we are holy, blameless, and above reproach. This speaks of our innocence before God. Paul extends his previous thought and expands it, goes beyond it that by faith in Christ, there is no one that can accuse us. Not even Satan himself can bring a charge against God's people. Listen to this. You wanna know why? Because in Christ, God sees us today as if we are already with him in heaven. Do you understand this good news? Do you understand this hope of the gospel? You are not who you say you are. You are not what your feelings say you are. You are not what your coworkers or your boss or your neighbors or your in-laws think you are. You are in Christ. And in Christ, you are holy, blameless, and above reproach. God, by his grace, sees you today as if you're already in heaven with him. He's just saving you a seat. Do you have anyone ever saved you a seat before? It's a great feeling. Uh, I, a, a couple of weeks ago, was attending a, a fifth grade basketball game. Talk about a means of God's sanctification and grace, right? Watching fifth grade girls running up and down the court. We score one bucket, it just, people just go nuts. Like LeBron dumped one or something. It's crazy, right? And so we get there to the game and, and I'm parking the car. It's bad weather. It's this time in Oklahoma. And so my, my family got out and so they got in some seats before us. And you know, normally, if you know how this works, you know, your game's not the only game that day in the gym. And so there was a game going on before us. There was hardly a seat available. And so my family is saving us a seat, specifically my four-year-old, Aubrey Faith. And so I get in there and I'm hanging out in the lobby and you know, high-fiving some dads. We're kind of talking about what's going on and everything else. And I kind of get in the gym and I'm kind of looking up in the stands about where I can sit down. And I see my obby from afar start jumping in her seat. Dad, dad, we saved you a seat. It's right here. Like screaming at the top of her lungs. And so I kind of you know, give her a little wave and I keep talking and, and you can kind of, she's like baffled. Like, did he not hear me? Dad, I'm over here. They think you're late, but you're not. We saved you a seat right here. 
And so I'm kind of, you know, beginning to wave and kind of work my way through the crowd. And, and so sure enough, there's this old man in front of me who's walking up the steps and my four-year-old is like yelling at him, no, 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 this is my dad's seat, not yours. <laughs> Saved, not for you, it's for him. And so you know, I'm still high-fiving people and getting to know, and dad, I'm right here. I've saved you a seat. So finally, for the applause and appeasement of everyone around, I finally get in this seat. And you want to know what my four-year-old says? I thought you would never get here. <laughs> I saved you a seat right next to me. There are many wonderful challenges that come with being a father. Many sleepless nights, many heartbreaks, many dumb instances of rebellion, hostility, things that we have to work through being dads in this room. But there's so many wonderful things. There's the best of things. And I can't help, but God the Father, when he, by the power of the Holy Spirit, was inspiring this text through Paul to believers in Colossae then to now 2,000 years later, believers in Christ now, that he didn't want you to miss this hope of the gospel. You see, many of you have loved ones that have gone on to be with the Lord. They are not dead in Christ. They're alive. They're just saving you a seat. There are many of you struggle with this understanding of who you are in Christ and God's desire to make you more of who you already are in Christ. You are holy. You are blameless. You're above reproach. And our God in heaven is saving you a seat. You see, the ultimate goal of reconciliation by God is restoration with God. This is the hope of the gospel. That God will do what he promises to do. That God will do what he declared he will do. That God will do what he's already done in us through the Lord Jesus Christ. So how do you know then if you're a genuine follower of Jesus? Look at verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all the creation under heaven, in which I, Paul, have become a minister. Paul gives three descriptors in the passive voice. He gives this image of a person that will not be removed from their chair. How do you know that you are embracing the gospel of hope? How do you know you're a follower of Christ? That you will be stable, steadfast. That you will allow the Holy Spirit to work in you, to not waffle back and forth, but to stand firm in the gospel. We, last week, we had an earthquake here in Tulsa. Did you feel that? Yeah? You know, it happened really late at night. Brent and I were almost in bed and we were hanging out with our seventh grader catching up on his week and all of a sudden our dog, Baker, just starts going crazy. We're like, hey man, knock it off, it's late. And he's looking at us like, hello, there's an earthquake here. Do you not feel that, sense that? How'd you handle it? Good? 
no, we, nothing in our house. It's great. We're, we're texting everybody else. Did you feel that? Did you handle that? You see, that's how life circumstances are to be to us, Paul says. The man with something unexpected hits us. Nope, hope of the gospel. When something seems overwhelming in our lives, a situation, nope, hope of the gospel. When something that, that even we did see, but you're just kind of, man, this went a whole different direction that I didn't ever anticipate. Nope, I'm standing firm. I have the hope of the gospel. You see, it is the gospel that is for God's glory. And Paul also says in closing, it's for our hope, peace, and joy. That regardless of what happens outside of our lives, on the inside, our status never changes. We are holy and blameless and above reproach before a holy God. That regardless of, of momentary trip-ups in our sin, struggles in any sense of health, emotionally, mentally, physically, no, these are just means that do not define us, but refine us and make us more of who God already says we are in Christ. Paul says, it is this gospel that I have become a minister to. Paul in his past tried to deny the Lord Jesus Christ. Killed innocent Christians. Seized, destroyed God's work. Yet on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, it was the Lord Jesus Christ who seized him. It was the Lord Jesus Christ who, though Paul tried to deny Christ, Christ never denied Paul. It is this hope of the gospel that you and I, in closing, rest upon. What is true of these followers in Colossae is true of us. It is this gospel that must be proclaimed in all nations. It's this gospel that you and I believe, obey, and apply as we reach BA and beyond, as we multiply disciples to follow Jesus, the greatest of all time. Our living hope, the scripture says. He's king of the universe, is he your king? He's the great shepherd, is he your shepherd? He is the one who reconciles us once and for all to God. Have you surrendered your life to him? Are you entrusting your life to him? Who is it this week that you can tell someone about him, about the hope of the gospel? If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe to hear other messages. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us online at fbcba.org. Thanks for listening to our podcast and always remember, you are loved.